Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 11th of October, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Social Justice Ireland has published its analysis of this week's budget. The think tank welcomes some of the measures to improve the lives of the low paid and the unemployed. But overall, it sees the opportunities to tackle the crises in health, housing and equality to have been squandered. Furthermore, budget 29 widens the gap between those who have and those who have not, with Social Justice Ireland highlighting how higher earners will gain 10 times more next year than those on low pay. Eamon Murphy, economic and social analyst with Social Justice Ireland, joins us uh, this morning. And I suppose one of the big headlines uh, from next year's budget, Eamon, is the 17 billion euro health budget. Uh, But you're questioning the figures and uh, the calculations behind it? Yeah, um, for the last number of years Social Justice Ireland has um, been questioning what the government is doing in relation to the health numbers and we're glad to say, or maybe it's a pity that we're, we're correcting it every year, but each year we seem to be proved right. The government seems to underfund the sector by about six or seven hundred million euros a well, year. Seven hundred million euro last year, yeah. that we're certain of, and bar windfall from unexpected corporation taxes, uh, that would have come out of next year's budget. Exactly. And um, I suppose what, what it looks like is that every year the government is failing to build in that overspend from the previous year and to take account properly of the naturally growing cost of the healthcare budget due to the fact that we have uh, an ageing population. Um, it's bad budget management. They've been criticised by the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council and this is something that really can't continue. And you know, we have got uh, experts in on the night of the budget analysing the the numbers that are coming from the Department of Health and each time we're failing to see how these add up. I have a feeling that around this time next year we're going to be faced with the same headline coming out and the HSE looking for more money because simply not enough was allocated to them to, to do the job that's required. Despite the increase in next year's budget and bringing it up to €17 billion, Euro, you believe there'll be a shortfall of close to a billion? Somewhere we're thinking somewhere between a half, half a billion, billion and a billion, billion, and yeah. a billion Euros, mm-hmm. yeah. That's the prediction. Talk to me next year and we'll see how we go, Michael. Okay, and I I gather uh, that will be easier to ascertain uh, when the Health Service uh, publishes its service plan, which will be in the coming weeks. 
Yeah, we will, and we'll be we'll be on we'll be on to we'll be on to the um, Department of, of Health about that when that comes out, and we've managed to analyse the numbers. I suppose not enough detail is given out on budget night. That can often be a problem. Okay, uh, you say that uh, there's a, a lost opportunity this time around. Uh, the government had a lot more money than most people would have anticipated. Uh, I suppose it was always known that there were options open to the government, and they went further than Social Justice Ireland would have liked them to have in, in terms of raising taxes from the hospitality sector. I was talking to Sean Healy uh, a few days ago uh, about how he wanted uh, the VAT restored. To to uh, the thirteen and a half percent rate for the accommodation sector, but the government went the whole hog and increased it pretty much across the board. Yeah, every year the government does pleasantly surprise us in one or two areas. Uh, last year they they increased the stamp duty on commercial property by about three times what we asked them to do, and this year the same thing happening in the, uh, the with the VAT rate on the, uh, the tourism sector. We felt that that was a a rate that had achieved its purpose when it was, when it was brought in six or seven years ago. Um, it had kept a lot of uh, business going through tough times and generated significant employment in the sector, but um, we're now reaching a point where I think the justification for that policy had long passed. The sector is proving to be very profitable. We're experiencing a boom. And people often say, well, look, what about what happens with Brexit? If uh, that makes if the repercussions that make Ireland less popular as a tourist destination, what can you what, <coughs> what can you do? Well, <coughs> we're now in a position where we actually have an instrument by which we can improve things again. Because if that, if that um, foreseen slump does actually materialise, you'll be able to bring that rate back down again by one, two, maybe even four and a half percent again. So I think it's a, it's a good move on behalf of the government. Not that that in, in the event of uh, a no-deal Brexit, that there would be a supplementary budget that would bring down the bad rate? Exactly. That possibility is there where you've got nothing to help generate um, activity in the sector if you uh, keep the VAT rate as it is now. And at at present, we believe there's no justification from it, notwithstanding the fact that there's actually half a billion euros going to be raised um, through that, which allowed the government to do a lot more in this particular budget than they otherwise would have. So I think we think it's a positive move overall. In other words, let's say if it's a horse or if it transpires to be a Trojan horse. Um, sorry, what do you mean by Trojan horse? Well, if the threat is real, if there is a threat or if it's something benign that we're just talking about. Oh, the no-deal Brexit? Yes. Um, I think that something will come from, from the negotiations. I think that uh, a lot of what we're seeing at the moment is posturing from British politicians, but knowing mm. quite well that they're the ones who will uh, lose out more than the EU um, if, if no deal is struck. I suppose the problem is, from our point of view, um, Ireland stands to lose substantially more than most of Europe and Britain probably knows that so there's an element of leverage there that if the European Union wants to stand beside Ireland they do have to strike a deal but overall I think the British are, are the ones who are most in need of the deal and something will happen to to ensure that we don't have the, the no-deal Brexit. That okay, well, all, all of the soundings uh, seem to be uh, that uh, it's a matter of uh, going uh, through the motions and that some sort of a, a deal will be struck uh, probably in November. Uh, and indeed, because of that, I think there's speculation that there could be a, a general election. But uh, if that's not the case, well, then it can be readdressed in a supplementary budget, and that's your point. Uh, this was uh, presented, framed in many ways as being a housing budget, how do you rate uh, the government's efforts to tackle that challenge? Um, I suppose 
the, the housing issue at the moment is not something that's built up over the last couple of years and therefore could be solved in, in one or two budgets. It's a result of not just years of under underspending by the Fine Gael-led governments, but decades of underspending from ones who went before. Um, I would definitely disagree with the assessment of this with the housing budget. While a lot of additional capital was given to uh, the housing sector, and while it is difficult to ramp up building from a few hundred units a year, as was the case a couple of years ago, to what's required now, there was lots of uh, initiatives that were left on the table that government could have used, first of all, to generate revenue, and second of all, to encourage good behaviour amongst developers and land hoarders. There was no site value tax brought in. That was something we advocated for. And there was no tax on empty homes either. Now, there's a lot of units sitting vacant around the country, not just uh, holiday homes. We're not advocating that people have to have to give up those. But um, we were based here in Dublin. I walk around the city centre to get to and from work. And there is, every day I see several, um, I pass several um, empty housing units on the way to work that could be used to, in some way, um, mitigate the, the homelessness and the housing crisis we're experiencing mm. at the moment. Why the government would leave them sitting there and not put some kind of tax on that would raise revenue and encourage people to, to develop those and sell them on, it's beyond me. But uh, the idea that this was a housing budget, I think it's, um, it's propaganda on the basis of the part of the government, I think. OK, but uh, the government argues that there'll be 10,000 uh, social houses uh, delivered next year. But the reality is uh, that when it had one and a half billion euro to spend, 1,500 million euro to spend, it gave 80 million out of that one and a half billion to the capital budget for housing, which will result in 490 houses next year on top of what had already been allocated. Yeah, and the numbers just aren't sufficient to even cover the demand that's coming on stream and never mind uh, to ease into the demand that's built up over the last few years. Um, whether or not this 10,000 units will actually materialise, it remains to be seen based on uh, what we've seen from the government in the last few years, which is uh, report after report and relaunch after relaunch of the same schemes and talking mm-hmm. about they talk about all these housing numbers as if they're new um, 3,000 are going to be built under this and 1,500 under this and, and really they're rehashing old numbers a lot of the time I, I don't think 10,000 will be built in 2019 um, my natural op- optimism has been tempered I suppose by by experience and I think uh, it, it's, it's a case of the government failing to grasp the nettle on, on this particular issue Okay, and much made of uh, the uh, affordable housing package, uh, but uh, what uh, is your analysis of that? Uh, The uh, government are are saying that there's uh, 300 million uh, to uh, go to this over the next uh, three years. Sinn Féin has been saying that 75 million was already allocated under the serviced site initiative, which means that there's only been an additional 14 million out of the 1.5 billion given to affordable housing uh, and that over the three years that they're talking about, uh, this will result in just 6,000 houses. Yeah, and um, we're talking about coming from a very low base. I think there was something like 32 affordable homes provided um, in the last four years. Um, and my, my main issue, I suppose, with this affordable home scheme is this concept of what constitutes affordable. Um, they're looking at... Um, 320,000 is being a price, uh, the, the price for an affordable home. If you're a single person, um, particularly if you're in a position where you're paying up to, you know, say, 1,500, €1,600 Euros in rent, which is a lot, of, a lot of the time the case in, in the larger cities, how you're supposed to put together a deposit for that 
under the central bank rules and then um, and, and then get yourself mortgage approval. You need to be earning uh, around about uh, 65, 70,000 euros a year as a single person before you can uh, achieve um, a sufficient mortgage approval for 320,000 euros. So my main issue with the, the affordable housing scheme is that idea of what constitutes affordable. I'm not sure that that's realistically within the, the grasp of most people, given that um, 65, 70,000 euros puts you very close to the top 10% of earners. So um, overall, I, I, we do feel the approach to this has been a bit unrealistic. Okay, and about 18% of earners are on the higher rate of income tax. What do you make uh, of uh, the tax uh, changes? Uh, the threshold for going on to the 40% rate has increased by €750 Euro and uh, some adjustments uh, to the universal social charge uh, as well, which will put more money in people's pockets, uh, but not a, a lot in anybody's pocket, really. Yeah, well, I suppose I, I felt it was a bit odd the way the government um, approached and framed this uh, this change to the amount of money at which you enter the top tax rate. Um, it's now in and around. So basically, this this change isn't going to um, benefit anybody who earns less than thirty five thousand euros a year. And the government is talking about how it went, wants to help the so called squeezed middle. Now, the two best. Uh, measures of middle income in Ireland that I've seen would suggest that middle income is somewhere between 25,000 and 30,000 euros a year. Nobody in that range is going to benefit from this change. The government had um, other options available to it in relation to how it could give back through the income tax system. They could have done it through the tax credit system. You know, Everybody who uh, works and earns income has tax credits um, that serve to reduce your tax bill. If you increase those tax credits, then everybody working and everybody who has an income will benefit to roughly the same extent. So the government could have done it that way, and um, it would have it would have given greater assistance to the people who are in and around twenty five, thirty thousand euros a year. Um, at the moment, it's only going to be a benefit for people over thirty five thousand. And what's going to happen is that whereas people around the average income, forty thousand a year, they will get some benefit. The majority of that benefit is going to go to higher earners. Um, and the higher, of course, the more money that you do earn, the more likely you are to benefit from it. And if you're on 75,000, you'll gain 10 times more than somebody who's on 25,000. Yeah, that's the result um, of uh, the overall um, the, the, the moves that were made in income tax, including the changes to the USC. So um, what the government, unfortunately, what the government has done is um, not only instituted a system, as where, as you mentioned, if you're earning... 75,000 a year, you're going to earn, uh, it's going to make 10 times more from this budget than someone on 25,000. You've got this situation where you've got, like I say, a couple with one income are only going to be better off by about 30 euros a year, not even a week, a year. Um, couples on 50,000 euros, uh, 50, euros a year, that's two earners, they're only going to be better off by a couple of hundred. So that's the way the system is structured. Um, if you approach it the way the government has done, then you're going to see this cohort of middle earners get really nice budget. Another way you could tackle that is by bringing in refundable tax credits for people who are working to ensure that the full benefit of the changes go to everybody equally and to um, people who are um, maybe on no income but actually working are uh, kept above the poverty line. So uh, the government has refused constantly to bring in that refundable Okay, we'll leave it there, Eamon. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Eamon Murphy, Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. 
Today is International Day of the Girl and uh, to mark the day, Plan International has published a survey of uh, the safest cities for girls in the world. Dublin is one of the safest cities in the world, ranking 14th in the survey uh, but uh, you may be surprised to hear that if you take a look at a, a survey that has been carried out by Plan International Ireland. Paul O'Brien is its chief executive. He, he joins us now and thanks for joining us as we've been hearing this morning. Nine in ten women in this country feel unsafe because they are female. Uh, that's correct Michael. Um, yeah that's the results of the survey that our youth advisory panel conducted in support of that wider survey uh, can I just correct you, please? Uh, just mm. um, Dublin actually came third out of 22 cities, so as the third safest city after Stockholm and New York. Oh, I beg your However, pardon. what was consistent... I'm sorry, on the, on the risk of murder, it was 14th. My apologies, yes. That's right. On the risk of murder, it was, it was 14th. So in terms of, I suppose, the thing that came across to us, though, was when you delve down into the figures, that sexual harassment is still very prevalent even in, in Ireland or in, certainly in Dublin. I'm not sure about Limerick and other places, but mm. it's certainly very prevalent. So what we found was a third of women uh, surveyed have experienced physical harassment in public places. Um, six in ten women feel unsafe taking the bus. So and this, while this might be very much in the evening or at night, you know, women alone feel very vulnerable and they have to take action to try and protect themselves. So it it, it comes down to some degree to a a definition of feeling safe. Uh, It's not necessarily because uh, some people have been asking me uh, how could uh, women in this country be be so anxious. It's not that they go out, leave their house feeling that they're going to be murdered or raped. I think it's, yeah, they feel unsafe because of their gender. They feel because they're women, they're actually more vulnerable, particularly in public places and particularly on, certainly on the bus. So that's what sort of comes out. And, you know, I think there's a huge onus on us men to try and look and change our behaviour towards women. Like, you know, what comes out is around cat calls, what comes out is around verbal abuse. Mm. And sometimes, yes, it gets as bad as physical abuse, but for the most part, it's actually more sexual harassment in terms of what's being said to women or catcalls and things like that. And I, I guess that's what I, I mean. Uh, if uh, women are uncomfortable because of catcalls or because of what's being said to them, then they feel unsafe and will feel that that might happen to them if they go out uh, or because of their experience of living in this country, they know probably that it will happen to them when they go out. And that seems to have been uh, the uh, perception of a a lot of women in Dublin in particular. In Dublin in particular, yes. And what we're, what we've, you know, what people have told us is that they've actually tried to change their behaviour. So they may take a longer route home. They may put keys between their knuckles in case somebody attacks them. They may pretend to, to talk on the phone as if they're talking to somebody. They might put up their hood. They may walk faster or jog, uh, particularly in the evening. So you're seeing women having to take a lot of very basic uh, precautions to change their behaviour to protect themselves from this sort of harassment and abuse. And I, I suppose a, a lot of people, male and female, would uh, adjust their behaviour, particularly late at night if they're on their own uh, and uh, feel somewhat isolated. Uh, but I, I gather you would feel that it's all the more so for females. 
I think it's all more so for females, particularly if they're on their own. So I suppose what we're looking for is for ideally men to change their attitude and behavior towards women. What we're also looking for is for girls maybe to participate in decisions, particularly around safety in their cities. So, you know, I think they're they're not necessarily consulted. And when we asked them where they consulted in any way around safety, they most of them said no. Mm. And then the final one we're kind of saying is more of an enforcing of laws and policies uh, protecting against sexual harassment. You know, what, what we've also found was that a huge number of women don't actually even bother reporting harassment. And that really is a kind of, you know, it says something about ourselves that people feel, well, there's no point in reporting this because nothing will be done. Well, that's right, though, isn't it? Kind of need. Well, it is. I think that's yeah. the problem. Yeah. You know, mm. how, how do people bring this to the attention of authorities? How, you know, how do we men who don't do this harassment make sure that our other men don't? Uh, how do we stand up for women in public places? How, mm. do we, how do we kind of respond to it? I think, you know, I think there's a kind of a huge onus, I think, on men, particularly to change their behaviour. OK, I don't know if you care to try to answer your own question, Paul, but how do you try to go about getting men to change their behaviour, to change their attitude, to, to uh, get into their minds and change their mentality? Well, I suppose I was, I was brought up in, in the countryside in Ireland, in North Tipperary, and I was always told by my mother and my father to treat women the way you would, you would treat your sister. And in a sense, the, you know, the way you'd want to see your sister being treated. So mm. I think when you see behavior that is not, not becoming or is not right, you have to be able to stand up for those girls and women in public. And you have to be able to say to other men, listen, sorry, your behavior isn't acceptable. And we are a lot better, aren't we? Because, uh, I, I mean, I'm sure in rural Ireland you saw the, a, a lot of unbecoming behavior. I was brought up in, in inner city Dublin and I saw a lot of behavior that uh, was downright wrong. But I would have thought that over the years uh, that the attitude of men has improved greatly. I Well... I suppose the attitude of many men may have improved, but it's still actually there. And that's what's coming out in this report. Because when we look globally, when we look at the global results, yes, Dublin comes out reasonably well in terms of what you refer to there, in terms of violent sexual Mm. crime or rape or murder. But we still have an issue of sexual harassment, uh, and particularly in the cities and particularly in public places. So I still think, you know, whether you come from the countryside, generally what we have found, and we work in international countries, or sorry, developing countries, and what we find is that when women go into cities, actually they can get access to education and they end up not being married so young. Hmm. So as a child rights organization, we're trying to prevent women being married from at the age under 18. So actually going into a city can be very positive for them in terms of access to education, in terms of ensuring that they may not get married. But they they also face dangers in cities, uh, particularly in in terms of the behaviours of men, in terms of harassment. And they have to change their behaviours, regardless of where they are, because of the behaviours of men. Mm. Uh, Well, I would think that if it's bad here, it must be an awful lot bad, worse elsewhere. If Dublin is one of the safest cities in the world, you talk about the risk of an acid attack against women. Dublin ranked ninth and is one of 
just 10 in the 22 cities uh, that were surveyed uh, where there is the prospect of this happening. But having said that, uh, I gather that uh, there's at least eight cities where the chance is greater. That is true. And I think, yeah, you know, I have to be honest in saying myself, I haven't heard of too many of those cases in terms of acid attacks, even in Dublin. And what you see in many other cities, I think particularly in Asia, is that acid is used. Uh, particularly if men are making advances towards women and those advances are not reciprocated. So if it's even for a proposal of marriage and it's not reciprocated, then sometimes acid is used then that uh, it's, it's thrown at people. And while that is probably one of the most horrendous crimes you can see, thankfully we don't see too much of that here. So I suppose what's coming out of this, while Dublin mm. may not be as bad in terms of those extreme violent crimes, that we should be thankful for that. And I live and work in Dublin now. So, yeah, for me as a man, I don't feel it. But what most women are thinking, actually, is that they're having to change their behaviour on a daily basis to make sure that they are safe. And that was certainly news to me as a father, as a husband, to think that my daughter needs to change her behaviour to make sure that she is safe, um, that my son doesn't. So I think there's something seems kind of very wrong there in a sense of the way we look at girls and the way we treat girls and the way that girls actually feel much more vulnerable because of their gender. Okay, but uh, in uh, an international sense, uh, I gather Ireland is a relatively good place to be female uh, where there is, at least on the surface of things, equality, choice, uh, uh, the idea of uh, choosing to get married or not get married, uh, to have a vote, to walk in front of somebody if you want to, or to drive as the case may be. I think that is very true, Michael. You know, it, 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 when, when we really consider it, it is much, much safer. And I I travel the world in my work and I feel very safe in Dublin, certainly as a man. But as I talk to women, I think with this survey, what comes out is that young women, particularly, and those who may be taking the bus in the evening, they certainly don't feel safe. They're having to change their behaviour um, because of their gender. And that's, I think, yeah, we need to kind of talk about this. Okay, well, thanks for talking to us about it this morning. Paul O'Brien, Chief Executive of Plan International Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the dust has settled on Budget 29 and politics moves on with the funeral of Emma Vic Vahuna causing politicians to pause for reflection yesterday. Professor Gabriel Scally was inside Lancaster House telling the Health Committee that more women could uh, be given a wrong diagnosis or could have been given a wrong diagnosis like Emma and that that will probably transpire in time. Dennis Nocton is in a storm of controversy over secret meetings with bidders for the National Broadband Plan. The Minister's intervention could in otherwise normal circumstances have sparked an election but despite Fianna Fáil's dire poll ratings don't rule out an election this side of Christmas. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and political columnist with the Mead Chronicle on the line. Uh, there's talk of an election, Gavin, for two reasons. Two things to consider. Dennis Nocton doesn't appear to be one of them, uh, but there's the renegotiation of the confidence and supply agreement that Fianna Fáil has with the government, and there's the probability, it seems, of a successful outcome to the Brexit negotiations. Yeah, well, and, and certainly you would think that Leo Varadkar would need to have at least one or the other if he was going to do this, but certainly there was an idea that especially 
especially once he had laid out Halloween as some kind of projected deadline for these uh, talks on having a new confidence and supply deal. If he were to come back in November with that formal Brexit deal finally in his pocket and if Fianna Fáil had missed the, the, the arbitrary deadline that he had set for himself, then there could be the prospect that he would go to the country. And, and indeed, um, it's striking how many people in Leinster House in the last couple of days have all kept coming back with the date of December the 7th has been the day for the, the hypothetical election that there was every prospect that if he ever had got a deal in Brussels in November, he could even pop into the Oris and see whoever's living there uh, on his way back to government buildings. So, and so a, a very short campaign, Dan, apart from anything else. Yeah, absolutely, which again will be another factor why December the 7th would work, because in generally speaking, in a shorter campaign, the party that has the higher poll lead uh, has less opportunity to lose it, so that it would suit Fine Gael's uh, end to that means if it was going to be a snap election. There is, however, one point which some Fianna Fáil sources have been fairly slow to point out, but it is something that I'm surprised hasn't really uh, gained a little bit more traction, and that is the fact that um, Fianna Fáil has committed that it won't pull down this government before December the 11th, because that's the date on which the finance bill is due to pass. And the finance bill... Sounds very tedious and very, uh, you know, confusing or bureaucratic, but actually the finance bill effectively gives uh, gives effect to the budget. And it's, it's one thing to say that the budget is passed now or the budget has been announced and that's simply it. But the budget actually doesn't really exist in terms of the changes to people's pay packets until the finance bill is passed. So all the talk of it getting uh, around €4 Euro a week for the average worker simply won't materialise if the government is collapsed before uh, December the 11th. Uh, likewise, I'm sure Regina Doherty will be very mindful of the fact that the social welfare bill equally has to be tabled and passed by the Dáil and the Shannon, or else the five euro weekly increases have no legal basis either. And there's also a very technical piece mm. of law called the Appropriations Bill, and if that's not passed by Christmas, the country would effectively grind to a halt next January or February because it wouldn't be allowed to spend its own money. So mm. there are actually huge uh, consequences for dissolving uh, a government right after uh, a budget, and it's something that they'll all be very mindful of, and no doubt, uh, even if Leo Varadkar is trying to run on a platform of being fiscally prudent and the stability that only Fine Gael can guarantee and that Fianna Fáil cannot, um, he will probably will be reminded that in fact by cutting and running to the country early in this scenario uh, that he would actually be leaving the country without a budget that had actually been passed into law. And would that mean that there'd be no Christmas bonus for example for welfare recipients for pensioners? It would mean that the Christmas bonus for this year ought to be okay because that's paid basically on a discretionary basis. That doesn't actually exist in law. So the minister can simply decide to make a double payment if that's what she wants to do. But certainly the legislation that sets the rate uh, for next year would have to be formally passed uh, through the Eurocus. And that, that is something that would have to be held up. Now, there has been some, mm. some fudging of that before, but certainly that would need to be done on a permanent basis. You certainly can't introduce uh, cuts to, to payroll taxes like the PAYE cutoff or, or the USC rates unless you've got a finance bill to do that. But the, the appropriation bill is very, very important because in actual fact, if you don't pass an appropriations bill, and it's amazing really that sometimes you don't hear very much about it at all, and often it passes the door without there literally being any debate at all, but I think that's because people know the grave consequences of not passing it. If you don't pass an appropriations bill, then by law, the state in 2019 could only spend a tenth of the amount that it had spent in 2018. And that might sound like it's still a huge amount of money because it would still be six and a half billion euro. But that's only enough money to really get the state over until around about the end of January. And then you'd have like an American style budgetary shutdown where all the civil servants would have to be laid off. It would just be such a, a calamitous uh, train of affairs that I think um, really a Taoiseach would need to think very, very gravely about uh, potentially dissolving it all when they may not be able to pass that bill before Christmas. Uh, and what do you think would be the deciding factor? Uh, would it come down to how many TDs he could return? Uh, well, 
I think uh, it, I mean that there may be a certain amount of that. I think I think the idea that uh, the many people within both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have always taken the attitude that this confidence and supply deal may only just be a temporary anomaly, and that if the opinion polls were to sort themselves out, that in good time they might get back to something of a two and a half party system where where there are stable blocks and and majority governments, albeit with slim majorities. And um, so there probably is a sense that if the polls were uh, just that little bit more solid, that in fact Fine Gael would be within striking distance of an overall majority, and he'd be happy to take that. Now it's interesting that when you when you compare the, the results between the the national polls, is sometimes when you see different analyses, if you translate that into the actual number of seats that they would have, uh, sometimes Fine Gael's uh, lead in the polls actually seems to whittle away quite a bit. That even though on average it may be eight or nine percent ahead in the opinion polls, ahead of, of Fianna Fáil and then Sinn Féin another few points back, that in actual fact when you translate that into constituencies and how people tend to vote, that Fianna Fáil tend to bridge the gap quite a lot, and that is something that Fianna Fáil themselves are quite aware of. And although you know they're all saying that nobody wants an election, at least until all the financial housekeeping that I mentioned has been fully taken care of. Mm. Now, it will be in the back of Fianna Fáil's mind that they do tend to outperform polls and that they won't be terribly panicked about what the Red Seas or the behaviour and attitudes or the Ipsos MRBIs are saying because they know that deep down when it actually comes to talking out and getting on the pitch, they tend to do just that little bit better. But where it may go wrong for Fianna Fáil is the Fine Gael campaign because if Fine Gael decide to go to the people, people, it'll be on foot of this budget, uh, which uh, on the headlines is a, a balanced budget, a caring budget, uh, one which has given everybody a, a little something and has put a lot more investment into the economy before anybody really gets a, a chance to judge what it means to them next year. And they'll have achieved the possible, the art of the possible in the impossible scenario of Brexit. Yes, well, that, that would—I think—that would actually be it. That it would be the, those two platforms that you mentioned. That you know, Brexit was a policy that was thrust onto Ireland with, with relatively little notice, with very little expectation of it actually happening. Uh, we've seen in the last eighteen months or so just how difficult it has been for for British governments to be able to table anything at all because of how it's constrained by certain factors like the the hardline backbench Brexiteers, by the reliance on the DUP. So, but, so to be able to get any deal out under those circumstances would be a remarkable diplomatic achievement. And then, like you said, no doubt we. Would would be told that, of course, it's the first time in 10 years that there's been a balanced budget, and not only has the budget been balanced, but that includes setting a certain amount aside for the future rainy day, whenever that, that may come, uh, and passing that balanced budget at a time where, although no one will really be, you know, um, over the moon or cock-a-hoop with the amount of money that they might have been mm. given, that they certainly, you know, no, nobody can argue that they've been left out, because uh, every worker gets something out of this, and every welfare recipient gets something. Uh, you may well argue that the gains have been spread so thinly that, in fact, nobody will really feel the benefit of at all and the VAT increase might gobble a lot of it back uh, but ultimately everyone will have more money in their bank account or in their pocket at the start of the month whatever at the end of the month and that is something that no doubt Fine Gael will, will hammer home and, and they will, moreover they'll point out that maybe although uh, Budget 2019 wasn't the most uh, elaborate or the most uh, remarkable in terms of what it puts into your pockets that when you look at the last three in fact the, the successive cuts to USC and to, uh, and to the raising of the, the tax thresholds uh, mean that in the round people are a lot better off but of course the counterpoint to all of that Michael is that Fianna Fáil will claim credit for exactly the same things because they would say that the reductions to USC or those uh, income tax get cut off are, are only really there because they were part of their own red lines going into confidence line in the first place. 
OK, but Fianna Fáil is in a, a corner of sorts, isn't it? Uh, because no doubt uh, it is looking at uh, the polls. And uh, if Fine Gael was to go into a campaign with all of those positives, uh, that would also work against Fianna Fáil. But uh, if it decides now is not the right time, well, then they've got to ask themselves, when is uh, the right time? Because if they continue like this for another couple of years, they could be so responsible that they become irrelevant well, well, I think that the, there is a, a something lurking in the back of Fianna Fáil's mind, which is that if you look at it from a very narrow, what is in your own party strategic interest point of view, and, and parking whether it's in, in the interest of the country or, or what have you, um, there is a general sense that you know, even notwithstanding all the financial housekeeping I mentioned, that uh, Fianna uh, that you know, Leo Varadkar holds all the aces at the moment. So if he did decide that he wanted to take the lead, that he has anything in polls, and he wanted to do it in the next two months, you know, th- there is every prospect that, in fact, he could come back with more TDs than he currently has uh, and potentially a more stable administration, which isn't re- uh, reliant on outside assistance from the main opposition party to get stuff over the line. So th- there is that. But I think uh, the, the other thing, too, is that if Leo Varadkar were to wait until the new year, um, even if there were no confidence in the supply deal or even if there was an idea of potentially delaying the summer 2020, if you wait until the new year and all the budgetary housekeeping is done, he effectively hands all the aces back to Fianna Fáil then because he gives them the power to collapse the administration at a time of its own choosing. And, you know, you have to remember that confidence in supply has, has bred a very unusual circumstance in Irish politics where uh, for some time now the Taoiseach has not been the only person who has the gift of causing an election at the time of their choosing. Now, mm. Michael Martin has made a virtue of signing a deal and sticking to it, but it is interesting that uh, if Leo Varadkar were to wait until the new year and there wasn't some further commitment from Fianna Fáil uh, that potentially uh, you know, he would be handing bases back to, to Fianna Fáil to call the election at its own choosing and that might be uh, a little bit of why Leo Varadkar would like to play the cards now while he does have them in his own hands okay. rather than giving them to someone else. What's your sense of it, Gavin? Um, to be honest, I don't think that it's uh, it's really going to happen this side of Christmas. I think that there there will be uh, some very calm looking at the confidence and supply deal. And I know that Leo Varadkar was even on uh, my own station, Virgin Media One, this morning and saying that he doesn't believe the government can go on if there's no basis for it to govern. But we tend to look at confidence and supply on the basis that once the third budget was published, that that was somehow the end of it. Firstly, of course, as I said, the budget has to be passed and has to be legislated for. But there are other things in the confidence and supply deal which aren't specific to budgets. So it's not as if once the budget is done that the, the deal suddenly expires and that there is no reason for Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael to cooperate. There are plenty of other things in the confidence and supply deal for which the two parties are agreed and there's no reason why those things couldn't be legislated for and it was in the meantime that does give uh, the parties really a good four or five months to really get their minds together and I think if there is no prospect of the deal being extended I don't think the doll can reasonably be dissolved this side of Christmas and I would anticipate that we could be looking at uh, a February election just as we've done for the last two. Okay, many thanks for that. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and political columnist for the Mead Chronicle. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Lots coming in this morning in relation to the budget and the various interviews that we did. We had a listener in touch. You have me there? We had a listener in touch in relation to your interview with Eamon Murphy and also following on from our interview yesterday with Peter McFerry, just to say that everything should be done to assist those unfortunate people who are lying in sleeping bags on our streets, Mm. particularly, this listener says, in Dublin, because she sees them in Dublin. She's um, 
in Dublin a couple of times a week mm. and just says, especially it's hard not in to the, see them in Dublin. Yes, yeah. mm. especially in the cold weather mm. uh, with the, the, the winter coming, she says that everything she feels should be done and that's what the budget should be about in her book. Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, in the overall uh, numbers, uh, it's a relatively small number of people who are in that situation, uh, one to 200 people at any given time out of the 10,000 that are homeless. The street sleepers are uh, definitely something that uh, it's very hard to, to... really look at uh, and brings it home. It's the hidden homelessness problem uh, that is quite often forgotten, uh, but uh, it is uh, Mm. certainly something that uh, is on the increase uh, as well and very hard not to see when you're in Dublin. Tom from Navin doesn't understand why hoteliers are so up in arms over the VAT hike. Well, it's a lot of money. That's what happens when you have a lot of money. Tom says that they got the help that they needed Mm. for years to assist them when things were bad in the economy and when people hadn't got the money to go mm. to hotels. But that has changed, Michael. You only have to try and book a hotel at the weekends to realise that they are packed and prices too have crept up in recent years. I think they should be grateful for the relief that they got for those years. OK, well, we'll hear from local hoteliers a little bit later in the programme today. On your interview with Paul O'Brien from Plan International, mm. Siobhan from Drogheda phoned in and says, unfortunately, Michael, women have to take many extra precautions to protect ourselves. You don't feel safe on your own in the dark or in an isolated area. Siobhan says that I usually phone somebody when I'm feeling a little bit scare, scared mm. or vulnerable. You always have to be on your guard as a woman. If you're having a drink, I won't leave my drink unattended. There's lots of little mm. things that you do. I'd be a bit wary on public transport, like a train, mm. if there were a group of lads and I was on my own. The chances are that they'd be fine, but it's a sad fact of life that women just don't feel safe. Yeah, and so shall it always be. I, I think uh, I think uh, that there's a lot of it which is just acting prudently, regardless of whether you're a man or a woman. If you're in a Mm. dark or isolated area, uh, it uh, is only sensible to be careful and to think uh, about the hidden dangers as such. All the more so, undoubtedly, if you're female. And I would think for the obvious reasons, uh, the chances of a a sexual assault, an assault generally because men tend to be physically stronger than women and that makes women vulnerable. Uh, And uh, that's something that undoubtedly has taken advantage of. But these other issues uh, about uh, sexual harassment, name calling and all of that kind of thing. Uh, Well, so shall it always be, right or or wrong, I think, to some degree, uh, unless uh, we can get into the minds of people and change the way they think, which is a big challenge, I would feel. A text from a listener on the same topic says, Michael, in Ireland, take note of how many women have been murdered in this country. Women are growing up learning martial art to protect themselves. Some men are bullies and behave badly. Mm. Another listener says, phoned in, I thought this was interesting, Uh, didn't want to give her name, but says, I work in Dublin, I start very early and in the winter months, in the dark mornings, I'm always very nervous when I'm parking my car and then the five to six minute walk to work. It's not in the best of areas where I'm working and I'm constantly looking over my shoulder. I think sometimes it's hard for men to understand. All right, I'm sure it is. Uh, Let's uh, talk a a little bit about uh, the funeral which uh, stopped uh, the nation in its uh, tracks yesterday. Emma Vick 
Fahuna's cortege stopping outside of Leinster House and Caroline O'Doherty is reporting on this uh, for the Irish Examiner today. Good morning to you Caroline, thanks uh, for joining us and uh, as you say in your article, even in death, Emma would not be silenced, that her voice uh, could no longer be heard but her message was loud and clear. That's right. Um, You know, her funeral yesterday was quite uh, traditional, quite understated in ways, but she had I requested some little touches which really stood out and which really were, I suppose, a symbol of the woman we've come to know in very recent times. But I think we all feel we've known her for for longer. I feel we know her quite well uh, because we've been through her personal trauma with her. Um, She... Uh, the funeral itself, I'd say, was quite simple, quite dignified, um, as if she said to say, look, don't make a fuss about that, but when I do say something or when I do have a gesture, that's going to really mean something, that's going to stand out. And what, there were a couple of things that did stand out, mm. but I suppose really once, once the, the funeral mass was finished and she had requested that the cortege pass by the doll and pass by government buildings, pass by the Department of Health and then go up to past Oris and Uthron. But going past the doll was the key one really she really wanted them to just acknowledge look at I may have passed on the issues that I raised have not um, and you need to remember this you know so the the, the tricolour was was lowered to half mast and politicians did come out onto the street um mainly opposition but you know a few government ones as well TDs and senators and there was it, it slowed right down to, to walking pace and there was a round of applause and you know, some people had come out certainly staff members from the Oireachtas had come out as well and some were wearing uh, pieces of red red scarf red tie and so on because there will be at the weekend a rally in, in memory of Emma in which all women are asked to turn up in red just uh, to remember the day that she came to court uh, for her settlement and she came in a basically a red ball gown a red dress uh, just to say, you know, this is this is not a, this is not me being, you know, uh, cowed by what's happened to me. I'm this is a kind of a celebration, or at least a statement, because I did win this part, even though, unfortunately, she she's lost on the other important battle with, with, with her life. I, I thought it was very striking in uh, the news reports on television to see people who would never have met her in tears, uh, standing by as uh, the cortege went by uh, at the mass. Uh, you report this morning uh, of some secrets uh, that were revealed and uh, we may end up reading Emma's thoughts because she was in the process of writing a book. That's right. Throughout all of this and everything she was going through, she put pen to paper and started writing a children's book. And very poignantly, it's set in Bally David, her adopted home in beautiful Kerry. Um, and she sets it on the first day of the school holidays and it's really from the voice of one of her own children and their friends. And she imagines them, the excitement, getting out of school, uniforms are thrown into the back of the wardrobe, on with the shorts and T-shirts, and they're getting packing their bags with what they consider to be the essentials of, 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 of going up to camp out on, on Valley David Head, which for children is crisps and biscuits and all those kind of things. But one child going through supplies produces a, you know, a packet of um, plasters and the other children are slagging him. And he says, oh, look, it was my mam." You know, she made me in case one of us gets hurt. And the other children kind of laugh because knowingly, because the Irish mammy, so embarrassing, because so overprotective. And that really struck a chord, I think, with people because everything, Emma was very clear that what she was doing taking the court battle you know if it was just for her the money meant nothing the apologies and the acknowledgement of what went wrong was really important but the money that she won that was for her children 
for the children who were, she was leaving behind through no fault of her own, children who had been left without their mum through no fault of their own. She'd always stressed, this is, I'm doing this for my children and for other women and other women's children who've been affected by this too. That idea of her trying to protect what was clear, dearest to her and trying to sort of extend mm. that protection to the rest of the country. It was very clear yesterday that that's what, that's what had driven her these last months. Yeah, it's not the first time uh, that Emma Vic Vahuna brought uh, the country to a standstill. I think the first time that she brought the country to uh, a standstill was in that radio interview when through her tears she was saying that she didn't want to die, that it was wrong, it was unfair and that she didn't want to leave her children behind and that she was afraid that her her children wouldn't remember her. Uh, It'll be very difficult for anybody in this country alive today to forget her. Absolutely. I mean, I think everybody was moved by that. The very idea that she'd poured so much into her children and her her youngest in particular, who was just two at the time of that interview, she was concerned he wouldn't remember. I don't think... You know, he will always he will always remember as much. He will he will know his mum, whether it'll be through direct memories or it'll be through what is filtered through to him from everybody else talking about it. I think she's going to very much remain a part of their lives, um, very much so. Uh, Everything that she's instilled in them, the importance of sticking together, the importance of not being afraid, the importance of speaking out. I think those are kind of um, values that permeate that whole family, that small group of children. But also, it was was really comforting in a way to see the sort of extended family grouping that she has assembled around the children. Because when they moved to Bally David, they had no real connection there, you know, she'd started off life in Dublin. They'd moved to Kildare, so it's not it's not necessarily the most traditional setup where you know a family they're born and bred in a certain area and the family are immediately around them. She's had to go back in time a little bit and gather all those people together to prepare them all for what lay ahead. And you could see definitely yesterday she succeeded. She's built a sort of a protective barrier around these children, and she's instilled in them a sense of personal strength that will also protect them. Okay, Caroline, listen, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Caroline O'Doherty is reporting on uh, the funeral in uh, the Irish Examiner today. Now, let's go back to more of your thoughts. Uh, Marie, what else have you got for us? Jim from Dundalk was in touch, listening in to your interview with Gavin Riley. And Jim wants to know, is this all play acting, Michael? This talk of an election. Fianna Fáil have stuck to the arrangement so far. So far, they have passed this budget. I think it's time now to put up or shut up. My bet is that they will keep going with Fine Gael as they are probably afraid to go to the country. That's Jim's thoughts. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, if it's a question, I think you could answer it honestly in two ways. One, to say, no, it's uh, the very serious business of running the country. And I think the other way you could answer it is to say Irish politics is always play-acting uh, and the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Just on that, Sean from Drogheda says, Leo Varadkar needs Michal Martin, Michal Martin needs Varadkar. Especially now with Peter Fitzpatrick gone from Fine Gael. Fine Gael are just hanging on by the skin of their teeth. So they do need Fianna Fáil to back them up. The chances are, if there's an election, it will still be the two of them in government. Oh, I forgot. I forgot. Fianna Fáil aren't technically in government. Mm, no, John they're not. Ghana. And I'm not sure that he's right either. I think if there's an election and uh, Fianna Fáil aren't in government, uh, we'll have a, a new leader. Okay. We'll finish on that one, Mike. All right. Thanks uh, for that, Marie. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today. If you'd like to add to what's been said, uh, I'm sure Marie and Maggie would love to hear from you. They're taking calls now on 1850 715 958. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the Association of Catholic Priests held its annual general meeting in Athlone this week under the theme of After the Papal Visit, What Now? Father Iggy O'Donovan is an Augustinian priest and a member of uh, the association. He's on the line. Uh, perhaps uh, you'd like to answer that question yourself. What now after the papal visit? Well, it was, it was interesting to uh, be there yesterday in Athlone. And I suppose after the papal visit, one of the things that struck me most of all, especially among us clergy, was um, far from getting the shot in the arm, if you like, that might have been expected from a visit by Pope Francis, one got the feeling that we ended up after that visit with a sort of a sense of disillusionment and a lack of hope. And that, was, that scene was palpable. I felt it was palpable there at the meeting yesterday. And why was that the case, do you think? A, a series of things, Michael, I think. Um, uh, the, the papal visit, if you like, in many ways got totally overshadowed by the, by the if you like, the sideline stories, which became central stories. Uh, the, of course, the sex abuse came up again and again. And would Francis meet or not meet survivors? That came up again. Then the huge stories from America, from Holland, from Germany, elsewhere. There was a virtual tsunami. And even somebody of Francis's personality, he couldn't keep that back. And that most definitely, most definitely uh, had its effect. So, um, mm. I'm, so I'm, I'm what I am myself, and including I'm feeling it myself personally, a great sense of disillusionment. Um, over, the year, over the years, Michael, there was a certain group who felt that there was room inside our church for different opinions, different groups. The traditional conservative right wing, certainly, along with um, another group who felt that Catholicism could be reconciled with modernity. I think of people like Tony Flannery, Brian Darcy. I tried a little bit myself here and there. The banished but, priests. <laughs> yes, but yes. Uh, the thing is that mm. now most of us are contributing little or nothing. I'm contributing nothing. Uh, virtually, uh, I had thought at one time there was great hope, and I had that certain feeling that there was a response coming. Not mm. getting rid of the conservative side, no, mm. but reaching out to that great band of Catholics, or for one reason or another. But I, if there isn't space for modernity, does that mean that the Church has returned to, to its conservative, old-fashioned ways? Well... Unfortunately, um, it seems to have done that because those who were battling for that mo- reconciling with modernity have all been effectively silenced or banished or, like myself, contributing nothing anymore, which is I find very frustrating, but that's the way it is. I think from what you've said this morning and uh, from what I, I heard others say in advance of uh, the papal visit, uh, and I hope you don't mind me saying it, there was a, a degree of naivety in that people were surprised to some degree, how many of these issues, which a lot of us would consider to be the shame of the Catholic Church in this country, came to the fore when Francis came to visit. Yeah, and no, it wasn't. A, it wasn't a surprise that these issues came up. They were always going to come up because it, it, it's still a burning issue in Ireland. No doubt. They're deep and scars. It's deep scars. Oh my God, I'm aware of it. It has been the most uh, traumatic event for the Church at least since the Reformation. Worse than the Reformation, at least the Reformation was, a, if you like, an eternal fight about mm. religious matters. And for was, many of the people, regardless of an institution, for many of the people in this country, it, it, it's been the reality of life. It, it, it has indeed. But at the same time, Michael, I think that bad though we are, 
And uh, we're really now, those of us who believed in reform, we're a very small faction now and our flags are very, very tattered indeed. And where we're going, I don't know. But certainly the message we've gotten, and I'm, we've gotten is that there really isn't room for our type of message inside the church. There's only room for one orthodoxy, one message, and that's the old-style conservative clericalism. And I believe that, okay, it's bringing peace to the church. There's little happening in Ireland now. There's no big rows going on anymore mm. uh, between the right wing and the left wing. They have their peace. But it's the peace of the desert. It's the peace of death. There's nothing happening, and our church is dying. And I don't know what's ha- happening in our man now, because I'm out of it for a while now. But certainly, um, as presently constituted, we're in the final phases of the present structure, because the uh, simple thing, most of the our clerics are aging. The younger ones generally aren't interested in reform of any sort. They'll leave well enough alone, and hopefully... I don't know, but it's a very... I've never spoken in such a disillusioned way, I don't think, to you, Michael, in my life. Mm. And if it shouldn't have been a surprise that the scars of people who were traditionally Catholic in this country continued to be raw, and that issues like selling babies or incarcerating women for free labour or enslaving them for that matter or violent assault or sexual uh, assault uh, was still so important that it would top the agenda. Perhaps what was of surprise was the recent revelations and the recent scandals uh, and how Pope Francis himself became embroiled in these scandals. Yeah, it, it has become so convoluted and, oh my God, it, I, I don't know, Jesus Christ himself, I don't think he could have handled it at, at the moment much better. But fr- part of Francis's problem is that I believe Francis is a genuine reformer. I do believe. But most of the campaign against him now is not coming from the liberal left wing or from atheists or, or anti-church people. It's coming from inside the church, from uh, people who feel that Francis is a dreadful mistake and that we need to see him off the premises. It's very interesting that during his visit to Ireland, um, one of the former top Vatican officials, a guy called Vigano, who uh, held very senior position, notoriously a right-wing conservative, he published a long letter which he released on the evening of Francis coming to Ireland. And uh, it was meant to inflict maximum damage. Now, that's a traditional group within the church who are trying to bring Francis down. Let's be frank about it. Now, Francis isn't perfect, but God is the best we've got. And he gave me a little bit of hope four years ago or five years ago when he came to power just before I left Grada. And I put a lot of eggs in that basket. But I underestimated, I underestimated the fearsome hold on power and clericalism that many of these curia, which is the name given to the Roman, if you like, uh, bureaucracy, which they've got. And they've been there a long time. They see Francis as a temper, as Albert Reynolds put it, a temporary little arrangement, and they'll see him off the premises. And God knows the poor few reformers that are left, they'll pay the price then. Uh, are you concerned that you might be wrong, uh, that he may not be the great reformer that you believe or believed he, he was? Is there a chance uh, that he is actually part of the problem that he's being complicit in cover-up? Yeah, I well, he had had a long career in Argentina, particularly under that military dictatorship, and exactly what the comings and goings were. And under military dictatorships, compromises of all sorts are reached. And it's not as you, where you don't have the free, open discourse that we might have in an open democracy like our own. But I would say that he may not be the great reformer, mm. but at least he was giving us our head. One little thing, Michael, since Francis came to power, 
the move against the so-called dissidents, we've been left alone for the moment. Mm. And uh, he has tried to rein in the worst elements of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And, my God, if we think that they, <laughs> the Stasi or whatever were bad when these guys come after you. But really, um, our, our last hope for a genuine reform, and there is a synod on in Rome at the moment, is, I think, Francis. But the man is in his 80s, and he's very much, he's very much alone. Mm. And uh, he, ha- he has a lonely job. In fact, I noted during his visit to Ireland, I detected a certain sadness in him. One time I thought I saw the old spark was when he visited Brother Kevin. Brother Kevin at uh, Church Street in Dublin, where he met the homeless and the poor and those who were evading of Kevin's services there. And I thought it was the one time in the body language that he looked totally relaxed. To some extent at Croke Park as well, mm. but not the same. But uh, I um, sensed that he, he had, that, he, that he was overwhelmed. But whatever about his behaviour in America, uh, I, I think it's uh, unquestionable that he made mistakes in Chile. Uh, sure, and, he did, and said so. Uh, oh, and said so. Uh, but there is a, a question as to whether he attempted to cover up a, a terrible uh, and huge scandal I- in Chile by blaming the victims uh, and uh, trying to cover up then for the archbishops who he's uh, ultimately decided were at wrong. Yep, and uh, I really can't comment much more on that. Mm. I don't know the detail of the story, but uh, other than that, I know that whatever he did in the past, I know he's got rid of them now, you might say a bit late in the day. Well, some. Uh, and, uh, of course, um, the well, I suppose one of the things we're learning, and this is what makes it worse for us, that much of the rot we have, much of the rot we have experienced, is like the head of a fish. It came from the head down, and uh, what is becoming more and more now is that the uh, problems in the church are not coming from dissidents and the bottom, or unlike people, <laughs> skeptics and questioners like mm-hmm. yourself, but from the very top, that the problem. Uh, really is there much more than it is on the ground. And what about and the Irish hier- hierarchy? Uh, because uh, I see Father Gerry O'Connor, uh, another member of uh, the association, telling Patsy McGarry in uh, the Irish Times uh, about how he's disillusioned like yourself, broken-hearted, feeling flat, feels uh, that the bishops in this country haven't engaged uh, with uh, the association over the course of uh, the last seven years, done quite the opposite. In fact, it, it would seem from his comments uh, because uh, they have been personally disparaging of uh, the association. Uh, and uh, uh, he goes on to say as well that the impression he has is uh, that they have no desire to do anything but get the association off the backs of the bishops. Yes, well, the sad, the sad little fact is, and I think this goes for most of the bishops, most of them, is that a group like the association and those, that small group who wanted reform and, and felt that some reform was possible, they're seen not as loyal Catholics doing their best in a terribly difficult situation. They're more or less seen as uh, disloyal, dissidents, anti-Catholic, anti-hierarchy, anti-everything, and uh, that's, that's very, very sad. And, for example, I suppose the most glaring example of all the scandals we have faced was the treatment of Tony Flannery, Tony who has been silenced, and a very orthodox priest, much more than I'd be, to be honest, but he is. But not a single voice was raised in his defence when he suffered that tremendous injustice. Not a single voice from any bishop was raised in his defence. 
and it was left to a few people like Brian Darcy and pe- writers like Patsy McGarry and a few like that, and a few indeed journalists. And it's one of the ironies was that those of us who largely have given up on our ministry inside the church, one of the few ways we can, con- get, if you like, communicate with the people, ironically, Michael, is through people like yourself and the journalists okay. who have at least still give some voice to thinking liberal Catholicism. Well, we're always glad to have you share your thoughts with us on the and program. We're, and what we're not doing, Michael, is, as, is trying to say, look, the others shouldn't have their opinion. They absolutely should. But there should be a room as well for those who have alternative views because we're all part of the same church. Not that there's one spot, the small Praetorian guard who are in charge mm. to whom everyone else must bow because, quite frankly, they have made a hames of it. Okay. And, the ha- and the hames is getting hamesier by the day. <laughs> Okay. Thanks for joining us this morning. Father Iggy O'Donovan. Michael Reed on LMFM. The European Network Against Racism Group publishes its reports of racism in Ireland for the second half of last year. Reports given to the organisation from the iReport.ie website. 256 incidents, including 23 assaults, 35 cases of ongoing harassment and 113 of online hate speech as reported in the Irish Times today. Shane O'Curry is Director of ENAR Ireland. Good morning to you Shane and thanks for joining us as people will read in the paper this morning those 256 incidents in the second half of last year follow on from 330 similar incidents in the first half. It's very hard to understand isn't it? Yeah morning yes it is. It is um, hard to understand, um, but we now know um, this being the 11th such report since we started these reports in, Ju- in July 2013. Um, uh, and the, the reporting levels are, are fairly consistent since then. Uh, in other words, we know that we're getting good data because it's, it's, it's similar enough from one period to, to another to know that these aren't flukes. Um, but what is alarming is that there is a that um, there is a there is a there is an increasing trend, and that we're detecting an increase in the severity of of the attacks that that that, that people are experiencing. Um, uh, and particularly worrying for us is something that we really want to pull out is the is the is the very high instance of um, of, of repeat harassment or ongoing harassment, um, and that's something. That's particular to uh, racist crimes. That distinguishes it from from uh, their ordinary common garden equivalent. Um, that you know, racist harassment isn't just antisocial behaviour. It's a, it's something that has a a pattern where the the perpetrator picks on a vulnerability or a perceived vulnerability of of, of the person they're targeting, and and repeats and repeats it. And and if they think that they're getting away with it. Uh, there is a there is a greater tendency with with racist crimes for 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 the instances to escalate, um, and very often you find a situation where it, it culminates in actual violence being meted out against the person, why, uh, why, or the or the person leaving leaving the place. Why, yeah. why why do you think they act that way? What is racism? Oh God! Well, I mean, well, I mean, what is racism? Hmm. Well, the, the theoretical question is is that. Racism is a is a system of oppression. It's a kind of an ideology. It's a it's a racism is this is an idea that mm, we but, have. That but but, but what what is it? I mean, what what drives it? Is it is it a, a sense of superiority? I mean, is it that people feel that they're so much better than other people that they should strike them? 
Um, I think so. I mean, I think that. Well, I mean, I think people, you know, people, people play out their frustrations uh, on other people's vulnerabilities. I mean, mm. I think that. But, you know, the, the, you I know, actually the wonder, I, 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 sorry, I, I, I would question, I, perhaps that is the case in some circumstances, but I actually feel that it, it, it's more a case of inferiority, uh, that people are afraid of other people. Well, I think, I think, I think that there's, uh, I think there's something in what you're saying. I think that people are going to leverage what they can. I think that people, you know, in, in, in different circumstances, people, People abuse power. We all know that in different ways, right? You know, we've seen, you know, you know abuse scandals. We've seen all kinds of situations mm. where if people aren't held to account or if people hold some kind of power over other people, there will be a tendency for some people to abuse that power. Now, one of the, one of the, you know, one of the fields of power that exists is, is race. And it's this idea that some, that, that categories of people, racial categories of people are real, which is actually a falsehood. Um, and that these matter and they count for something and that they make some mm. people deserving and undeserving. I think in some circumstances when, when people have frustrations in their ordinary lives, they find a scapegoat or they find a, a lightning rod, somebody to, to take their frustrations out on. It's kind but of little man always... syndrome, though, isn't it? Uh, I, I mean, it's that thing of, well, you're not better than me and I'm better than you and I'll stand up and show you and that kind of thing because people are uh, feeling insecure themselves. Well, it's a bit like, yes, it's a bit like what Bernadette McCallisky used to say about sectarianism in the North. It's top and tapeny looking down on top and right, sometimes. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that, you know, that people can leverage a, a sense of, well, at least I'm not X and, mm. um, and, and, and use that person to scapegoat. But I think that more widely what, what our report has shown is that there are system-wide failures, that it isn't just, I mean, there are the patterns of harassment, but that these things happen in a context where, wider, where individuals from minority backgrounds and wider society are given subtle signals and sometimes not so subtle signals by institutions like Angarda Shir Khana, like, um, you know, like sometimes in trio offices, like other institutions, that what happens to them, that the type of discrimination against them doesn't really matter or should be expected because they're from a minority background. And this amplifies the, the, the sort of normalization of racism, if you like, and, 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 and embeds it and creates the conditions in which people think that it's normal and that on some level they think that they are acting with the permission of wider society mm. to carry out those uh, those acts on people. Well, it, it's um, treating somebody wrongly, isn't it, uh, because of something that's different between you and them, whether that's skin colour or religion or whatever the difference is. Uh, and... Uh, that cannot be a, a superiority complex because if you felt superior, you wouldn't feel a, a need to act that way. Uh, you wouldn't be bothered by them. So it must be an inferiority complex. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I understand where you're coming from in, in the sense that the person doing it has, you know, got issues, you know, clearly. But that they're, what they're doing is they're leveraging uh, a, an ideological thing that tells them that they're entitled to feel it, superior to that person. I suppose in the same way that, uh, you know, and something that's a little bit analogous, it's not exactly the same thing, but, it, you mm. know, in the case of, of you know, gender violence or, you mm. know, domestic violence or, or, or stuff, 
Again, um, inferiority complexes. I, I, inferiority complex, mm. but mm. what they're doing is leveraging misogyny. They're, they're mm. leveraging a system of ideas that say that women should be, you know, meek and obedient and, mm. and do well, as they're told. Well, well that's because I'm yeah. a man yeah. and I'm better than you because yeah. you're a woman because yeah. I don't yeah. want to feel as though you're better than me because I'm a woman yeah. because that would sort of upset me or something. And I'm, yeah. and I'm so afraid internally of that that I have this inferiority complex which makes me act this way. Yes, I think so, and I think mm. that, that in that sense, the fact that the analogy is 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 right there. I think that there's a there are some parallels between um, you know basically you know male male superiority or male supremacy. These ide- these mm. ideas that men are and um, and white supremacy, which you know um, you know we live in a globalized world, and and uh, we, you know we, we we live in a world that is divided unequally and. Uh, and you know, with the with the context of colonialism um, and and the conquests of other people and their enslavement in many cases and the genocide in, in other cases, mm. uh, it, it 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 becomes normalised to look at poverty and unequal distribution of 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 income and status and wealth and jobs, etc., mm. uh, by blaming by blaming people from minority backgrounds for this for for what they're in and this. This is all part of a system of ideas, which uh, even when we are liberal and enlightened, etc., we, you know, is, is deeply ingrained because we get we, those messages are subtly reinforced. Mm. That tells us, uh, in the same way that we get subtle messages about uh, the role of women, the role of girls, and, and mm. you know how how boys should behave versus how girls should behave, etc. And it's becoming um, more violent. Uh, I understand uh, from the report this morning that 75% yeah. of uh, the crime uh, was committed by white Irish people. I, I gather yeah. predominantly white Irish men. Uh, and uh, I'm sure these white Irish men with inferiority complexes yeah. are, are, are becoming all the more violent uh, because uh, they're uh, afraid of themselves, uh, as we've been discussing, uh, but it, it, it needs to be combated. And I suppose that that is uh, the point uh, of bringing these statistics to the public's attention. Well, that's the thing. The thing is, is that, the, you know, the best way to mitigate against these is um, is to have proper policies and practices in place. So we've been calling for hate crime legislation for a number of years now, Primarily, you know, to give primarily from the victim's point of view to give recognition to the to the actual to the greater harms done to somebody who's been on the receiving end of of racism because it's it it, it, it the impacts are so much greater on somebody that you know I I speak to people almost every day who are petrified about going out on the street who don't let their children play outside or people who don't go who don't want to who don't take the usual route to school or who have stopped cycling or walking to school and, and taking the bus or being driven there it's a, instead so people these 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 things have profound effects on people's lives and 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 make them see and experience Irish society in a different way than you and you or I do so okay. the, um just and, to and, I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, Shane. I, I have actually run over time. Just to remind right. people, though, iReport.ie is uh, the website if people want to report uh, such incidents to you. And listen, thanks uh, for joining. Sorry for cutting you off there. Uh, not at all. Not uh, at but all. But thank you, as I say, for joining us this morning. Shane O'Curry, Director of Enar Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about uh, the increased VAT rate or the rate of VAT for the hospitality sector, which uh, was restored to. to 
13.5% after being reduced to 9% as a jobs initiative in 2012 as part of the budget announced in 11. We're joined by John O'Neill, who's the owner of the Hamlet Court Hotel in Enfield, County Meath, and he's also the secretary of the Meath branch of the Irish Hotel Federation. Good morning, John, and thanks for joining us. Obviously, uh, you'll take a hit on this, but a lot of people would feel that it's about time. Good morning, Michael. Um, <clears throat> from, from, from the hotel industry point of view, I think the measure that was brought in in 2011 was extremely helpful. It's delivered uh, absolutely fantastic value for money. Um, in total, we've created 65,000 jobs nationally. Um, and where we do realise that Minister who has had a very challenging budget to perform this year, and we do respect uh, the social issues that, of the day, we also feel that, you know, to go from 9 back to 135 to 50% increase in the VAT, um, and it particularly affects our competitiveness in the foreign market, mm. particularly the EU. But you've been given preferential treatment uh, for six years. Uh, and what evidence is there that you've used that cut? Uh, because it's not an increase now, it's a restoration of uh, the old rate. But what evidence is there of that cut being used to prop up your business rather than to prop up your profits? Well, all I can say, you know, from, from a mead point of view, um, you know, the national recovery in the economy hasn't been totally balanced. Um, the, the peripheral cities have um, recovered at a far faster pace than the Mead. And I think if you look at the room rates available in Mead currently, we're still really competitive and we're, you know, in the mid-70s. Mm. Um, well, I was, look, I was looking at them this morning uh, and I was looking at your own hotel. It's €87 Euro for a room tonight and €122 Euro on the 26th of October. What justifies prices like that in County Meath? Well, €122, Euros, I think, is great value for a room for two with bed and breakfast. Um, I think if you look at nationally and European-wise, we're in the market. And it's it's how the it's how the room rate is done according to when the business is there. Mm. I've been speaking to people who've been telling me that they uh, could go to Dublin Airport, get an, a, a plane, uh, and get a, a hotel in a, a country in Southern Europe where it's cheaper to eat out uh, and so on. Uh, but if you include the cost of the hotel and the flights, uh, let's say early in the year, then it's far cheaper than holidaying in Ireland. That can be the case at some of the times. Like Ireland is a very high cost economy um, compared to some of our European competitors. And now with the increase in VAT, it's actually going to make us less competitive. We now have 26 of the EU countries have a lower VAT rate than Ireland will have for tourism in particular, whether that be hotels, attractions, etc. Mm. Um, and I think that's going to have a knockout effect. Like our biggest foreign market, like eighty percent of tourism is foreign tourists coming into the country. It it brings in a turnover of over eight billion a year annually. Mm. And if you take our biggest market being the GB market, um, I mean last year it's down six percent. Yeah, but tourism is up by four percent. So what's the point? Well, <clears throat> the <clears throat> the numbers. You know, in the foreign tourists, like coming from the emerging markets, 
and from mainland Europe yeah. are still in an infancy stage. Well, so they're actually not, you know, they're the, not the tourism levels are, are, are at record levels. Correct, but if you yes. take the demographic of the GB market... Yes, we're, we're, we're less reliant on that because there's uh, been a huge fall in the number of people coming from the United Kingdom, a 4% increase in the number of people coming from elsewhere. But if you look at the demographic of what's coming in elsewhere, we in County Meath here feel they overstep us, so they come into Dublin, the next thing they're in Galway, they're going to Kerry, they go back to Shannon, they're on the plane. Well, maybe it's out. because it's €122 Euro a, a night for a room. Uh, the Department of Finance uh, looked at uh, how the VAT was being distributed in 2012. Excuse me. In, in 2012, it said that there was some benefit to the consumer in restaurants and cinemas, uh, but that the accommodation sector was profiteering from it? I think if you look at the, the national figures, I would say that they would actually speak slightly different. I know that we have an occupancy issue in Dublin and also in Cork, hmm. and it is driving the prices up. There's, you know, Everyone knows that. However, I think if you think, look at the hotels in County Meath in hmm. particular, I think you'll see that we're offering tremendous value for money. Well, people will have to judge that for themselves. But if in 2012, nationally, hotels were not passing on the cut to the consumer and were making extra profit out of it, what argument is there to continue with that cut today? Or is it an argument that just applies to Dublin, do you think? I think that the argument of the 9% fat, it was fit for purpose. It made us really competitive to bring in the foreign tourists. Um, well, it was probably half the price to get a hotel in 2012 when hotels were making additional profit out of this tax cut, wasn't it? But like when the industry back in 2011-2012, there wasn't a hotel in the country that was actually profitable. I mean, the industry was totally and utterly on its knees. And that's why the 9% was brought in to try and lift the whole industry as a whole. And now we've become the biggest in, the, in this <coughs> the biggest export industry in the country. But the, the, the department said in 2012 that hotels, accommodation, was not passing on the cut. I can't comment on that in the sense of from the members I speak to and the members that are from County Meath, I can assure you that the cut certainly was passed on. And what do you expect this to mean for your business in Enfield now? Do you expect that it will result in reduced uh, business and uh, that you'll end up uh, with fewer staff and so on? For me personally, I think um, the UP, uh, GB market is going to be extremely challenging. Uh, I think there will be a fall off in business. Um, as uh, you know, I was trying to say that you know the the, the recovery hasn't had its full feeling in County Meath. I think that many of my colleagues in the area now will be looking at every line on the P&L and will be making appropriate cuts to remain uh, where we are today. And to, and to increase room rates? I uh, don't think room rates will increase. That's been truthful about it because the market takes the price of the room rates. Uh, but certainly I think the food and beverage end of the business will see increases. Mm.
All right, we'll leave it there. Thanks indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. John O'Neill is uh, the owner of uh, the Hamlet Court Hotel in Enfield, County Meath, and uh, the secretary of uh, the Meath branch of uh, the Irish Hotel Federation. And brings our programme to its conclusion today. Our time has run out on us once again. Thanks uh, to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Marie in the Control Tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning, 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.